You're listening to the Reinvention Project with Jim Rome podcast. Welcome to episode 26 of the Reinvention Project with Jim Rome. I hope you're having an amazing week. First off, let me start by thanking you all for the kind thoughts regarding last week's solo ep, and I will definitely be doing more of that in the future, except not this week. Not this week because I do have a guest, and not just any guest, but a guest who, to me, represents true reinvention as much as anybody I've ever spoken to to date. His name is Chris Norton, and his journey, his ability to persevere, his courage in the face of adversity, and resulting mindset almost defy all logic. Like I've spoken to a number of individuals over the past few decades who have overcome seemingly impossible, unfathomable odds and adversity to not only resume living a normal life, but in actuality, their best life. And Chris Norton is right near the top of that list, if not all alone at the very top of the mountain. His story, his journey, his approach, his mindset are absolutely incredible, and I know I know you will be moved by what he has to say and the manner in which he lives his life. Trust me, this is an app you have to hear. So lock in episode 26 of the Reinvention Project with guest Chris Norton because it's coming at you right now. Chris, I've got to say, I think that your story, your journey, your grit, your toughness, your mindset are absolutely amazing. Like, I can't tell you how pleased I am to meet you and to have this conversation with you. Thanks so much for doing it. So first off, how are you and how is that amazing family of yours? Yeah, thank you, Jim, for having me on the show. And uh, thanks for asking about my family, but we're doing great. Uh, the kids are in school. They are loving life. They're loving uh, being in person which is a treat after, you know, the virtual and the pandemic has changed so much. So having them that social interaction, but I got a lot of kids. I got six kids and all. The amazing thing about that is that there's so much that goes into that, and I will definitely circle back to it, but that's amazing in and of itself, and I do appreciate what you said about being back in person. I've got a couple of kids myself. I've got one in college. I've got one in high school, and it is great to have them back in school and doing it in person. Chris, if you could take us back to the beginning, you grew up in a small town in Iowa. What was that like, and what were you like as a kid growing up? Well, growing up, I love sports. I loved uh, being competitive, it doesn't matter what it was. It could have been rock, paper, scissors, a uh, game of cards, war, uh, whatever it was, I wanted to win. And so I just had this edge about me. I'm always trying to figure out how I can beat somebody else, which led me to fall in love with football and basketball. And I just learned at an early age to uh, be my best and to work hard, even though I wasn't the best. I was kind of undersized, uh, not as athletic as maybe some of the, the top um, people in the, in the area, but I just found this desire to work hard, do everything I could, and uh, I had great parents, great family, and uh, just had this love for sports. Now, family is such a big part of this story. There's an amazing movie out right now about your life. And your father's in the movie, and he talks about how you were a special, special kid in that you weren't special. And it's the point that you're making right there. You weren't the biggest kid. You weren't the fastest kid. You weren't the strongest kid. So I'm curious, what was it like the first time you put on a football helmet? Well, when I put on a football helmet, I felt like invincible. I felt like a gladiator. I wanted to hit somebody. I, I turned from this passive, timid uh, kid to... There's aggression. I love the idea that I could just let loose and hit somebody as hard as you, you can. And that's encouraged. Uh, so that was a lot of fun for me. I remember being a middle linebacker. I was the smallest kid on my team. And I was the middle linebacker just because I was not afraid of contact. And uh, I just had great instincts and I knew where to find the hole and where the ball carrier was going. So I just uh, fell in love with it instantly as soon as I got those pads on and uh, just kept playing and uh, just it fell went to high school and then eventually college ball so really quickly about high school I was gonna ask you about that what was it like playing high school football under the lights on Friday nights with all the guys you had grown up with representing a proud tight-knit community like that what were those days like it was incredible uh, I'll never forget those football Fridays and just the leaves in the trees are changing colors. Uh, the, the air, the weather, like everything's kind of changing. 
over to that fall jacket weather and just that fire inside and that anticipation for game day and the lights and yeah your whole entire community coming out i went to a small school small town and literally the whole entire town was there and lined up against the fence and packed the stands and just great energy and it was something that as a kid you you watch and you went to those games and um, while you know i didn't always watch the games growing up because i was on the sidelines like off in the other field playing tackle football against the other town's team uh, of like elementary kids but uh, uh, when I finally got the opportunity it was just a dream come true to be on that stage and uh, yeah represent my town you know even in the movie itself Chris you were talking about how it was an honor like it was an honor to represent the town the way you did so you have a great high school career and you have multiple opportunities to play college ball you end up in Luther College why was Luther the place for you for me it was the the location it was the uh, the education that it provided. And then also I just felt like I fit in with the culture. I fit in with the guys that I went on my visit with. And I just could feel this bond and uh, likeness with um, how they did, went about their business and how they approached the game and life and sports, school. I just connected with them instantly, a, a stronger connection than any of my other visits. I just knew that'd be my place. And uh, I'm so glad I did. It was the best decision I made. Hey, can I talk to you for a minute about stress? The stress of daily life and what it can do to you and what it can do to your body. And I don't care who you are, like whether you're an elite athlete or maybe somebody like me just trying to make it through the day tension free. What do you do? Where do you find help? Do what I do. Use Theragun. I cannot wait to tell you about this product. Theragun is amazing. Theragun is the handheld percussive therapy device which releases your deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combo of depth, speed, and power. And it's as quiet as an electric toothbrush. The Gen 4 Theragun does not just feel good, it gets to the source of the pain by releasing tension. Using Theragun's signature percussive therapy, which goes 60% deeper than vibration alone. So whether you want to treat your muscle tension from working out, or an injury, or just the stresses of everyday life, there is no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4. There's nothing like this product. It's amazing. It's one of a kind. In fact, it's trusted by 250 professional sports teams like Real Madrid. Also, elite athletes like Paul George, DeAndre Hopkins, Maria Sharapova, and hundreds of thousands of customers like me and many of you. Try it yourself. Try Theragun for 30 days, starting at only $199. Go to Therabody dot com slash reinvention right now and get your gen 4 theragun today i'm telling you it is one of my favorite products ever therabody.com slash reinvention therabody.com slash reinvention all right then so that brings us to this where you were good enough to play and earn playing time as a true freshman which is not easy to do and not only that but you found yourself in a game against central a rival and a powerhouse of sorts in a game in october of 2010 chris you were sent in on special teams to cover a kick what was the play call what was your mindset as you hit the field on that play yeah i'll never forget it's third quarter we're mounting a comeback against one of our in-conference rivals. And as a freshman, you're just trying to make a name for yourself. You're trying to uh, earn more playing time. And, you know, thankfully I was able to kind of work the way up the ranks. And I remember the kicker, he huddles us up. He calls the play mortar kick right, which is a short high arching kick to the right side of the field. And I don't know why we didn't just call it kick right because our kicker was so bad. Every kick was short and high arching. <laughs> Funny. But anyway, you know, I was pumped because this is my time to make a play. And so I line up, the ball's kicked. I sprint downfield as hard as I possibly can go. I see an opening forming. And my instincts are telling me that ball carrier, he's gonna try to run into that gap, but I'm gonna stop him. You know, I'm gonna drive my shoulders so hard through his legs that he's gonna drop the ball. And so I go for it and I collide with them at full speed, full force, 
but I miss time my tackle by a split second. So instead of getting my head in front of the ball carrier, my head collided right with his legs. In an instant, I lose all feeling and movement from my neck down. I'm just laying there, listening to the players crash into each other. The whistle blows, the pile clears off, but I can't move a thing. I try pushing through my arms, nothing's happening. It just feels like someone flipped the power off to my body. I can tell the game has stopped for me. I'm feeling embarrassed. It's like, I don't want this kind of attention. I want to, you know, brush it off and, you know, move on to the next play, but I couldn't do a thing. Now I had no idea at the time I suffered a severe spinal cord injury and my life is about to drastically change. I mean, Chris, it's, it's, it's really horrifying to even hear you tell the story like that, but you are laying face down on the ground, and as you pointed out, you felt like somebody turned the power off your entire body. Like, you have no movement, no feeling whatsoever. Can you even remember the types of things that were going through your mind in those agonizing moments? Well, at first, it was just confusion and frustration of like, that I couldn't move. Like, like come on, like, I got to get up. Uh, this is this is embarrassing. Like, I did not want to stop the game on my account. I've always kind of been trying to the tough guy of shake it off, move it on, not make a big scene of um, and needing that kind of attention. But there's nothing I could do. So I'm thinking, okay, this is a really bad stinger. Now I've had a stinger before where it left me kind of motionless for uh, just a short like minute or two. And I was able to shake it off and walk off the field. But as time went on, nothing was happening. The athletic trainers, they come get involved. The paramedics, they're all asking me questions like, you know, Chris, can you make a fist with your hand? I tried making a fist. Of course, nothing happens. They're asking me, Chris, can you feel this touch in your legs? I'm not going to feel a thing. Eventually, they, they rolled me on my back. And this is the first time I really could tell something was wrong. I make eye contact with one of the student athletic trainers and I could just see in her face. She's terrified. She knows something bad is happening. Whereas everybody else was kind of keeping their cool and their calm and collected. It was serious, but they weren't, you could, they weren't showing it like the fear this, this girl was completely, uh, I could read her like a book and I knew something was off, but I brushed it to the side, you know, she's young. Maybe she doesn't really know what's going on. And then eventually they call in for a helicopter to fly me from the local hospital to Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And that's when I know, like, holy cow, this is bad. Like, was, this is serious. Right, I was gonna say, Chris, and then the transport by helicopter, what do you remember about that helicopter flight? Well, I remember a panicking because I get in right well, right before I get in the helicopter, I was losing the ability to breathe. My lungs were starting to fail me because my injury level was so high and severe. And they told me, you know, Chris, if you are struggling to breathe, let the flight paramedics know and they'll put a breathing tube down your throat to pump an oxygen. But we warn you, if you do that, there's a chance it could cause more damage to your spine. Well, of course, that's, that's the last thing I want. I don't want my situation to get worse. So I tell myself, like, no matter what, you're not going to use that breathing tube. Well, the door shuts. I can't hear myself or feel myself breathing anymore. It's so loud with the propeller blades. And as we're going, I'm just trying to keep myself calm. But I, I get to a point where I feel like I'm drowning. I, I'm gasping for air. I open my eyes. I'm trying to mouth to the paramedics next to me, like, help me. I need that breathing tube. But no matter how hard I try, there's no way they're going to hear me over the helicopter blades. And so not knowing what to do, I do the only thing I could possibly do, which was close my eyes. And I begin to count my breathing. I just try to imagine myself breathing. And I just count every single breath. I just kept counting and counting. You know, it was like one, two, three, and then eventually I get to the hundreds. But then at that moment, I realized, okay, I'm breathing. It's going to be okay. 
you're not going to die. It's going to be fine. But it took me a while to kind of calm myself down and realize it's going to be all right. And um, I really learned the, the value of just visualization, counting your breaths, focusing on what you're getting and not what you're losing. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure how you knew that. Maybe as a young athlete, maybe you had learned certain things that obviously were benefiting you, but you're 18 years old, you're in a transport helicopter, you're literally fighting for your life, and that you were able to get through that that moment. That moment in and of itself to me is absolutely amazing. You get there, and then they put you in traction to stabilize you. What did that involve, and what was that like? Well, they had to anchor my head together. So they, they had to like make it like fasten it. So they had these screws that basically went into the side of my, my head on each side. I still have the scars from those screws going into my head. And they used these uh, numbing stuff for those spots to ease the pain. But as soon as those screws started going in, it felt like it was excruciating pain. I, I asked them if they could do it again because um, it was not working, at least in, in my account. And so they did it again. And uh, so they anchor my head and then they add this weight to essentially, they're adding weight to my, my head and neck to break my neck back together because it was so badly dislocated. They couldn't operate it unless it was put back together. So essentially this traction machine breaks her neck back into place. And so that was one of the most uh, excruciating and um, difficult moments of the entire process to be awake and to wait for that, my neck to essentially like break back over into place. I've never heard of anything like that before, Chris, but in the movie Seven Yards, you also describe it made a horrifying sound too, right? Like you could hear it. Yeah, it, it was like uh, a celery stick breaking um but kind of that the crunch sound and uh yeah it definitely makes you cringe thinking about it and definitely something i would never wish upon anybody to go through all right so then they put you in an mri machine and you obviously had been praying throughout this entire ordeal you said that that time though in the mri machine was the first time you felt like you were not alone what did you mean by that so going into the mri machine i'm miserable i'm I'm freaked out. I'm wondering about my future. Like, what's my life going to look like? I'm in this neck brace that was really uncomfortable. And the top of the neck brace uh, was in the back of my head, the middle of the back of my head. And so it was just like a lip there that was just grinding into my head. It was really uncomfortable. Um, in the MRI machine, it's, there's like this loud beeping noise uh, that just you, you can't, it's like the most annoying sound in the world. Um, so with all this going on, as I'm laying there in the MRI machine, it's going to be like an hour process. I remember having a simple ask to God. Now, as I'm praying, like, God, can I just please fall asleep? Like, I would love nothing more to fall asleep in this moment like this. I need a break. I need an escape. And the next thing I know, I'm being lowered out of the MRI machine. I had fallen asleep despite everything that I was going through. I thought it'd be an impossible scenario to fall asleep in. And I did. And it was like a moment of realization. I'm like, okay, you know, maybe God is with me. Maybe there is, I'm not alone. And that gave me great comfort and strength in just looking forward and Maybe it's not the end of my life. Mm. So then you're getting ready for the surgery, and there are all these people, and they're prepping you. And again, it's a terrifying moment, and you have your wits about you, though, and you're waiting for the right moment to ask the surgeon a specific question. What did you ask him? I want to know if I will ever walk again. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I can give up sports, which was a huge sacrifice on my end because sports was my life. I, I loved competition. I loved the physical strength, the aspect of working out, everything. That was a huge deal to me. But I made a, a bargain with myself and with God. I'm like, okay, I will give sports up. Let's give me the ability to walk. Like that would be, I can live with that. And so that was my, you know, kind of my bottom 
of, you know, the totem pole of like, of ask. And uh, when I asked him, I could just see in his face. He, he I think he kind of knew the answer, but he, he just looked disappointed and defeated. And he looked on the ground and, and he just said, I don't know, Chris. And I just start crying because I could just tell from his body language, it was not good. And he couldn't even answer whether or not I'd ever walk again. And so that's another moment of just where it really hit me and rocked me that, wow, my, my life is definitely changing and maybe for the worse. I mean, I can't even imagine, right? Like you're going, you're about to go into this procedure, the most important moment of your life. And the surgeon just is giving you no reason to believe and no confidence. And I mean, what a terrifying thing. And then you come out and then ultimately the doctors tell you and your family that you have just 3% of ever regaining any movement at all below your neck. Now, understand this about you and your family. You've always been extremely positive, extremely upbeat, extremely competitive, and they're telling you you have only 3%, any 3% chance of ever regaining any movement. What was your reaction when you heard that? Well, at first, it was, it was so hard to process because right. yesterday at this time, I was walking you know, I was suiting up for my college football game. And all of a sudden I'm lying in the hospital, paralyzed from the neck down with a 3% chance to ever move or, or feel. And so at first I'm kind of numb to it all as I'm processing it. And then it, it turns to anger. And I just tell myself, no way, not me. Like, this is not going to be my life. I'm going to beat the odds. I will not be like the 97% who don't recover from this and I will do whatever it takes to be a member of that 3%. And so I just get going to work and my family had this kind of stubborn, reckless belief as I did that we're going to be part of that 3% and we will make it happen some way, somehow. And so I just started doing the only thing I could possibly do that day, which was to nod my head. Yes. And no. And I just nodded my head. Yes. And no for hours. I looked like a giant bobblehead, just bouncing my head all around. But I was just going to do every little thing. And eventually I shrugged my left shoulder, beating the 3% odds. But, you know, despite having a shoulder shrug, I'm still a prisoner trapped in my own body. You know, I, every single time I try to move and I couldn't, would just send me in a panic attack. And so it was still uh, really difficult, but I just kept focusing on those small victories every single day. All right. So something extraordinary happened, though. On the fourth night, the fourth night in the hospital, you had an extraordinary exchange with a nurse. What was so significant about that conversation? Yeah. So every night, every two hours, a nurse comes in, checks my vitals, and their interaction with me is all very clinical routine, and they leave. Well, it's the middle of the night, it's, and it's not just – my worry that keeps me up, but they keep me up when they come in. Well, she comes in and does something different than anybody else. She comes over my bedside. She gets down on one knee and she says, Chris, look me in the eyes. And she was kind of mean about it. And so I lock eyes with her. She's this short, slender woman, reddish hair, glasses, probably in her sixties. And she's got this voice that sounded like she came straight out of a Western movie. And she says, my name is Georgia. I'm from Wyoming. Do you know anyone from Wyoming? I say no. I'm thinking, where is this going? And she says, well, people from Wyoming don't tell lies. I want you to know you will beat this. You will beat this. I instantly start crying. I needed to hear those words so badly because like, up to this point, I was questioning whether all the time and effort I was putting into my recovery, would it ever pay off? But in this moment, because of Georgia and her four words of you will beat this, my faith, it feels restored. And the thing about Georgia too, is that she went above and beyond you know, her job responsibility. And that's where the impact was made. And I think if everybody can just do a little bit more than what's expected of them, like that's when you can make the biggest difference. And Georgia just really showed me how much impact one person can make. And she made a huge impact 
on me and how I would approach my rehab and recovery going forward with even more faith than ever before. Okay, see, this is so this is so key. I hope people are listening right now and they're understanding. Like you're you're weaving a lot of these themes into your story and the thing that is even bigger than what it is, the fact that one person saying the right thing at the right time can make such an impact, can make such a difference, and the importance of faith and things like that. And then five weeks in, five weeks was supposed to be a key point. Five weeks in, you actually have feeling in your big toe. What was that moment like for you? Well, it was exciting because I'm, I'm making progress. I, I want to move something, you know, in my legs. At this point, I'm not moving a thing, but I'm regaining sensation. And I wake up to this, the strongest sensation I've ever felt, you know, in my legs at this point in my left big toe. So to me, something special is happening at that spot. I'm with my dad. He's super excited. And we cannot wait to tell the doctor that day. Well, my doctor comes in for the examination. I start telling him about this new sensation. And I could tell right away from his body language, he didn't really care. And so I asked him, well, can you take my shoes, sock off and examine this big toe? Something special is happening. He refuses. And he tells me, Chris, you're experiencing a phantom feeling. And it's where you want to believe you can feel something differently in your body so badly that you trick yourself into thinking it's real, but it's made up. And it's just part of your body and your injury. Well, you know, I knew I didn't make it up. I knew it was a phantom feeling. And as an athlete, you're, you're really aware of your body. And I just felt he got this completely wrong. And then to make it worse, right before he leaves, he says, Chris, you'll never move anything in your legs ever again. And turns and walks out like it's no big deal. I was devastated. My dad, he was with me, devastated. I've never seen my dad cry before. I consider him to be one of the strongest people I've ever known. And with tears in his eyes, he tells me, Chris, do not let anyone determine your outcome, but you. I look back at him, tears in my eyes, and I say I never will. And so I respond with even more hope and determination than ever before. I hear George's words once again of, you will beat this. A wave of motivation sweeps over me, and I just become bound and determined. I'm going to go prove this doctor wrong. Well, not even a week later, that sixth week on Thanksgiving morning of all mornings, I wiggled that exact left big toe, that buzz kill doctor said I would never move again. And I was so pumped. I was telling every nurse and therapist that day, you go find that doctor who I like to call Dr. Phantom. And you bring him in my room and tell him the phantom this. As I wiggle my toe, in his face and uh that toe wiggle it grew to be so much more i got strength in my quads hamstrings eventually able to stand up with assistance so it was a huge uh, turning point for my recovery that's not what i call that guy i call that guy dr a-hole that that is one of the worst yeah. I, I just dude i can't even imagine like you you and your family that the, the strength that you have that you could push back and come back and thank goodness that you were like that tiny tiny percentage it's like no i'm not gonna accept that i'm not gonna buy that i just for the life of me i don't need not to dwell on that but how how could he not even look at your foot when you're telling him, Doc, I, I know I have movement here, and that he just shot that down, when it's so critical. I mean, the, the whole Georgia thing about what she said when she said it and the impact it had on you, can you imagine what impact this could have had on you to hear something like that from that doctor? How could he say something like that to you in that moment? Oh, absolutely. And the thing is, you hear stories like that all the time from people in the hospital, and they believe it. And right. they, they actually buy into it, and it's – it's heartbreaking. And I get that maybe some doctors are trying to be maybe realistic. I don't know what they're trying to do. Maybe it's ego. They think they just have the answers, but you know, miracles happen all the time. And I think it's one of the worst things you can ever do as a human is to take away someone's hope. I feel like you should always leave that door open for hope and those the possibility because I don't know, just miracles happen all the time. And I would hate to ever take that away from somebody who, who's a believing. 
Right, exactly. Like then, then you lose faith. Then you don't try. Now the thing is, Chris, that miracles do in fact happen. But you always backed up. I mean, whether or not this is a miracle, I don't know. Maybe it is. But you back this up with work. The therapist, the surgeon—not that one, but the actual surgeon. Others who were involved in your rehab and your therapy all said that not only did you do the incredibly hard mental and physical rehab that went along with this thing every single day, and you were at the Mayo clinic for seven months. Not only did you do hours and hours every single day, but you were always looking for even more. Once you were done with what they asked you to do, you wanted more. And that they say they had never seen anybody as driven and as motivated as you were. Where did the intense desire come from? Where did that immense drive come from? You know, I probably attribute to my upbringing and just um, my family. I can remember uh, in particular, I was about 10 years old. I'm on my way home from a basketball tournament. And I remember tears in my eyes because I had the worst weekend of basketball of my life. And to make matters worse, I'm on my way home with my coach, who's also my dad. And so I'm avoiding any angry glares from the rear view mirror. I get home, I kick my shoes off and I go straight to the couch, distract myself with TV, video games. And as I'm sitting there, I'm just thinking, man, if only I was taller, faster, had my own personal gym, then I would be such a good basketball player. And then my dad, he comes up to me a couple hours later, sits next to me on the couch. He says, Chris, if you don't like where you're at, then do something about it. If you don't like where you're at, then do something about it. And those words, as simple as they are, it clicked. Why feel sorry for myself when I'm not willing to do anything to change? And blaming my circumstances wasn't helping. And if you want to get better results, then you have to get better. There's no shortcut. And so I got up off that couch. I went outside and I shot baskets until it was dark. And this moment really became a huge turning point in my life for how I would start to respond to my failure and disappointments. And what I really attribute this to is my dad taught me the importance of being radically responsible for your life and that means all outcomes the good and the bad because the more responsibility you accept the better you respond to adversity and one of the quickest ways you can become more adept at being responsible for your life is to give up blame and complaining and excuses because these behaviors they keep you emotionally stuck they prevent you from doing all that you can do and you really know you're practicing radical responsibility when you realize that the only thing you truly have control over in life is how you respond. And so I knew in that hospital, it was really up to me for my life, for my success, my happiness, and what I did today. Like, what can I do today to improve myself? Understanding that your future will take care of itself when you take care of today. And so I, that was just my priority, my focus. I just felt this great responsibility for everything that was going to happen to me. And so I uh, gave it my all and everything that I did. And that's something I preached to other people uh, as a motivational speaker is to take on that responsibility to empower yourself. If that you want something, you got to go make it happen. I love that response so much. I love everything about what you just said. It's like ownership, complete ownership, ownership of everything. You know, the entire movie, Chris, Seven Yards, is so incredible, and it's so moving, and it's so inspirational. But I really wanted to get to this part of the conversation. I want to tell you one of the things I was most moved by in watching that movie. Your dudes, your friends, your bros, this group of guys— is absolutely incredible. Like, I want to meet these dudes. How critical were your friends in your recovery and your entire journey? Oh, man, they they gave me a life. They gave me confidence because that was one of the things I was worried about. It's like my own identity. Like, I always, I was an athlete, so I felt like that was my identity. I realized I'm so much more than an athlete, but they helped me realize that they valued me as a person, of who I was, my character, and my morals, my values, and not how I perform in the field or just being a teammate. And so they really just rallied to my side. They kept showing up in the hospital. They would uh, sleep with me at night because I would have no way to adjust my arms or legs, blankets, if my body would have uh, these muscle spasms. So they just went out of their way to make sure 
I was taken care of. Uh, they made what was inaccessible accessible. They would carry me up flights of stairs. They would uh, take me tubing down the river. Uh, we got on roller coasters and uh, crossed the country and road trips and flights and uh, water slides and you, you name it. We, we've done it. Um, and these guys, they, they wanted, they wanted this for me as well. Um, so they were just, I don't know. It's hard to put into words how much they, they mean to me and what they've done to just open my eyes to the possibilities of what I can do when you have a team. I think you have to see the movie. I mean, even you yourself are having a hard time explaining what these guys have meant to you. If you see the movie and you watch it, you can see it. I mean, this is an amazing group of dudes. You know, Chris, what's incredible to me is you get out of the Mayo Clinic and you go home and you start your new life and your life's in this wheelchair and you're trying to make some sense of it. But man, you had this, like you went back to school. You went right back to school in the fall. Like you had this sense of urgency. I need to know well, I mean, college was always going to be there, right? Why was it so important to get right back? And how in the world did you manage as a college student without a caretaker? Yeah, that was, I attribute that to my, my parents, especially my mom. She was kept saying like, Chris, like you're still going to live your life. You're not going to put everything on hold just for your rehab. Because at that point, my mind was all about the physical and occupational therapy, like how many hours can I get in today for my training? While yes, that's great, but she also knew the importance of having balance and going to school and making sure I didn't miss out on a college experience. She knew that was important. Um, my older sister had an incredible college experience. My family has, my parents. So they knew I had to get back to school. Like I had to get some semblance of normalcy. And actually a huge reason I was also gave me the confidence to go back to college because college is three hours away from my hometown where my parents are. My older sister, Alex, actually relocated to an apartment just off campus to help with the huge transition. So she was there to help me drive to doctor therapy appointments, uh, get sometimes get me up in the morning or get in the bed and uh, get across campus, you name it. She was there to, to help me out. She pretty much her life on hold to help me because she just got her bachelor's in nursing and instead of going into the workforce she was there to help me and then also I had my college buddies I did have a couple of caregivers like nurses that would also help me out so it took it took a huge team but I wouldn't have been possible though without living on campus with my buddies without my sister all kind of rallying around me to really look out for me. I mean, it's incredible to, to think. I mean, college would be tough enough just to show up and do what you need to do. And it takes a village, of course, as they say. So, but you start thinking about, all right, I, I am returning to life and this is my life. I'm curious, when did you first start thinking about dating and what kind of thoughts did you have about that? I mean, as an 18 year old, dating was definitely one of the first things I, I thought about after my injury of how would this work? Um, I can hardly move my arms and legs. Uh, will a girl actually want to be with me. And so I was pretty worried about that and how that would, would be. But as kind of time went on, I realized that again, there's, there's more to me than my physical strength. And that's not the most important thing to a lot of people. And I, I started to understand that. So dating was definitely something on my mind. And I began online uh, dating I met, Emily and we connected and it was something that uh, I don't know she just asked the hard questions she asked me a lot of the similar questions you're asking me right now of how'd you get through this and she wasn't afraid to kind of get into the weeds of those conversations which I welcomed I don't mind people asking me those kind of questions but a lot of people were intimidated by it they didn't want to upset me which it doesn't and so I just felt connected with her. We met in person. And uh, it was, for me, it was love at first sight. My jaw dropped when I saw her in person. She was even more beautiful than I expected. And uh, we 
quickly started dating and I fell in love pretty fast. Uh, I don't know, Chris, it's, it's really hard to even do justice to what Emily is like. I mean, you want to talk about a miracle like this gal. I, I've never met Emily, but watching the movie again, I mean, she, she is extraordinary. She is something else. I mean, can you explain, like, can you give the listeners an idea of what, what is Emily like? How would you describe her? How would you characterize her? She's a go-getter. Um, she is very independent, strong-willed, um, such like strong morals and values. Uh, she knows who she is and what's important in life. And she's extremely selfless, um, full of energy. And uh, she just makes things happen. And uh, she also has a huge heart for kids in the foster care system, which I never really knew much about the foster care system until Emily. Uh, she was constantly, her phone was ringing all the time when I was with her from kids that she was mentoring just on her own, just kids who come from a, a rough home life. And I was just blown away by all the time and effort and energy that she was putting into others. So I knew right away, I'm like, okay, this girl, she's special. In fact, I'll never, never forget, I call her one night when we were just starting like weeks into um, talking and kind of getting serious and she was crying. She's at a park and she was crying by herself. And I was like, oh no, this is, she like was just with like an ex-boyfriend or there's something else going on and I'm trying to get to the bottom of it. And she said, I've just been thinking about all those kids out there who are lost right now and I feel like I'm not doing enough to help them and right away I'm like in my head I'm like no way there's no way she's crying thinking about she needs to be doing more with her life to help others she's just a college kid like no one thinks like that so I kept asking questions I'm like okay like you think about like somebody else like there's something going on with us and I kept asking these questions like no like I just feel like I need to be doing something bigger with my life. I need to do, do more than what I'm doing right now. And, and that was the honest to God truth that she just felt this calling on her heart and that she needed to step up and do even more than what she was already doing. And that's another moment where I just was blown away. Like, who is this girl? Like who thinks like that so selflessly and has a love for so many other people? Especially at that age, like I said, just extraordinary. So like you're going to school and you're taking care of your business, and then you get it in your head, you want to walk across the stage to get your diploma. When did you first get that idea? And at that time, Chris, how far could you actually walk? So I, it was pretty short. I mean, months after my injury, I kind of had this idea. Then when I went back to college, I definitely felt this calling that I got to figure out a way to walk across the stage. Like, what a great um, milestone to accomplish and to wrap up my college experience. And I remember telling some of my buddies about it and they thought it was a great idea. And it just kind of gave me something to work towards, to work hard. And at the time I could barely, uh, I could barely walk with two therapists. Like I had two therapists with me and a lot of times someone pulling my legs through. So I, I could, I wasn't really walking at all. It took like, two or three people just to get me across, you know, 10 feet. Uh, but, you know, I didn't stop me. And um, I just knew if I kept chipping away at it one day at a time that I was going to make it happen. And when I met Emily, what was really special about her is she took on my goal and dream to walk across the stage as her own. In fact, she became my toughest trainer. I'm not even exaggerating. She was always pushing me to take one more step to one more walk. And uh, in fact, I walked better with Emily than any of my therapists ever walked with me. So I knew she had to be the one that would eventually help me across the stage. All right. So you formulate this plan and then actually really quickly, this part of it, you took to social media. Like you really cannot walk without the help of a couple of therapists or Emily who was doing a lot of the work, but you, you take to social media and you announce your intentions. Why did you do that? Well, I just knew maybe there's an opportunity to inspire other people. Uh, maybe uh, I could give someone encouragement to go for their own goals and dreams that were maybe holding themselves back because it's scary to put out a huge goal like that for, for anyone. 
and the idea of, of failing. No one likes to fail, but yet when you can put it out there, hold yourself accountable, help other people to hold yourself accountable, it just gave me such a target and such a drive and fire that I've never felt before. And I think it really shows that power of accountability and also sticking with your word. That's also important to me is understanding when I say I'm going to do something, I mean it. I'm going to do everything in my power to fulfill that. And so it just helped push me along to make sure it was successful. Well, and you guys did, and you were all in. You guys did. You guys actually, you finished early, finished school a semester early. You moved to Michigan, and you did so with the express intent to train for that walk across the stage. In the league, in the weeks leading up to the graduation, what were you thinking? Was doubt and fear creeping in? Were you getting concerned? Yeah, absolutely. I got concerned. In fact, I started taking a new supplement that supposed to like kind of help you sleep at night and kind of like relax your body well i didn't as this was going on i'm thinking this is just a nighttime thing well my therapy session my walking completely uh started to go down like it i could barely take a step and i was getting so frustrated i there was plenty of times where i was just in tears of what am i doing like what's happening like i'm not going to be able to get across the stage like I told everybody, everyone's going to do. And uh, eventually I just kept pushing. Uh, I took, I got off that supplement and then things started to kind of turn around for me. And uh, I think though that those couple of weeks though leading up to it, I was terrified. Um, just wondering like, did I waste all my time those last six months of relocating myself, Emily, um, all those years of telling people I'm going to make this happen. Did I do it for nothing? And uh, thankfully, I just kept pushing forward and uh, kept trying to figure out how we're going to make this work. Right, yeah, but Chris, but there's so much pressure, right? The way you laid that out, there's so much pressure. If there were not enough pressure, you had another trick up your sleeve the day before the graduation walk. What was it? Yes, to make that weekend more nerve-wracking, I decided to propose to Emily, yeah, the day before, way more nervous for the proposal than the walk in front of thousands of people. Thankfully, she said yes. Otherwise, that next day would have been awkward. But <laughs> it all worked out. And uh, yeah, after you know, 4,500 hours of training and four and a half years of perseverance, though, the graduation day finally arrived. All right, so then lay that out for me. Four and a half years after the accident, as you point out, way more than 4,000 hours of training and therapy. I mean, you want to talk about game day, then the moment. What happened in the moment? What happened in that walk? Well, I'm first going into it, I'm nervous because, I mean, for many reasons, but one of the things I'm thinking about is graduations, they're long. It's a slow process. Uh, there's a lot of people that have to go across that stage. It's in a, like a huge auditorium gymnasium. So it's hot and, you know, people, they want to get going, you know? And so I'm worried about people like booing me off the stage, people checking their watches, like, okay, let's move this along. Well, I, I get up there, Emily stands me up and the crowd just erupts and cheers and clapping. And I just felt all this great positive energy and it really caught me off guard and so we started walking and the, the excitement and the energy just continued the entire time you know as an athlete you're, you're you can tune out the outside noise pretty well but you couldn't help but notice the excitement and the energy that was building as i was working my way across the stage and just focusing on one step at a time and i was able to do it I get there and I look out and people are in tears or cheering, they're clapping. And I couldn't believe the emotional response from that. And so much so, I'm kind of thinking to myself, did I miss something? Was there something I was not included on of why this is so emotional for so many people? But it just had that kind of pull on people. 
Absolutely incredible. I'm so glad you laid that out like that because there was so much emotion and so much positivity and so much inspiration and so much energy in the building that day. So much so that you didn't even understand it or know what it was about. Did you have any idea that that same type of reaction was taking place outside the building, in the community, throughout the state, even around the country? Well, not at first, um, because the video would go viral and we'd wake up the next day to a flood of emails and missed calls from the largest you know, media outlets in the world, all requesting to interview us and to get this videotape and to get the full story. And it was unbelievable. We were going from you know, one interview to the next. Uh, so much so we had to go shopping a couple times just to get new outfits so we didn't wear the same thing for um, all this, these different interviews. So it was unbelievable to see how powerful that moment would be, not just for us, but for other people. And it just, I don't know, it just validated all the hard work that we went through, all the sacrifices, and to know that it's being used for good, that it's helping people and we would read these just heart-wrenching stories from people all around the world sharing you know all the brokenness all the frustrations and difficulty the adversities that they've been going through and that seeing this short four-yard walk has given them so much hope and courage to take on the challenges that were in their lives all right, so like if the movie were to fade to black right there, it's one of the greatest stories ever already. And you just mentioned, Chris, it was a four-yard walk, but the movie's not called Four Yards. It's called Seven Yards. Why is the movie called Seven Yards? Well, that's right, because those messages then inspired Emma and I to then walk seven yards down the aisle of our wedding together. But this time, instead of her walking in front of me like she did for the graduation walk and how I'm used to, walking with other people, we decided we're going to do it side by side the same way we'd spend the rest of our lives together. And I, in fact, I couldn't even take a step the first time we practiced the side by side walking because I lost a lot of support that I was used to. So I had to really get back in the gym and really retrain myself to be able to pull off this walk. It seems to me like you were going to walk the love of your life down the aisle she was not going to be in front of you you were going to walk side by side walk her down the aisle and the movie tell me i'm wrong chris but the movie was named seven years and they kind of let you know that was the name of the movie and if you couldn't take that one step with her by your side again did you go through that process once again i cannot let these people down i have to execute i have to get it done i gotta make seven yards oh absolutely i I can remember that first practice walk and I'm trying to take a step. And at first I just think, okay, I'm going to try to go two yards, you know, we'll build up to seven. Why couldn't I, I couldn't take that step. Uh, the more I try, the more frustrated I get, I'm leaning, I'm arching and grunting. Nothing is working. I'm like, Emily, sit me down. What was I thinking? Why did I set this crazy goal? And yeah, to make matters worse or to add even more pressure they had already been promoting and named the movie Seven Yards. So there's no wiggle room in that title. I can't walk five. I can't walk six. It's got to be seven. Plus, uh, we already had like People Magazine reach out to us. They wanted to be at the wedding and, and cover the entire day. So there's a lot riding on this walk. And at that moment, it was definitely a feeling of feeling overwhelmed. But again, kind of going back to that radical responsibility, if, uh, if I'm going to pull this off, I got to put in the work. I got to buckle down and up my training hours and I'm going to practice every single day this walk for the next uh, year, two years until um, I'm ready. So you trained for that moment for the next year to two years. I want them to watch the movie Seven Yards so they can see how it plays out. I do have to ask you this, though. Just a couple of quick things before I let you go because it's so amazing. What goes through your mind when you think about how far you've come and what you've accomplished in the last seven years? I I would say that sometimes life's lowest moments can be the source of our greatest gifts. And you just 
really never know what's possible in life or what you can achieve when you just never give up, when you keep going and just keep taking one step in front of the other. Because when I reflect on now 11 years since my injury, and I think about all the, the blessings, all the, the amazing moments and the relationships and the people and experiences that I've had. And it just helps me understand that no matter what adversity is thrown at you, don't give up. No matter how daunting and overwhelming it may feel in that moment, you never know what's possible. You just have to keep going. And I hope my story, the movie and everything about it can give people that hope. That's why I love doing I doing as a, as a motivational speaker and having a foundation to just use what I've experienced and just help other people. That's what my whole life is about is how can I serve others? And I know um, through the story and my example, I, I hope I can give someone that courage to keep going and to not give up when life gets hard because life is hard. Life is hard. And it's a story of perseverance and grit and courage. And it's also a message of the importance of faith and the power of family and the power of friends. And speaking of family, you and Emily, and this is how we started this conversation, you and Emily have a family of your own, Chris, and not a small one either, my dude. Lay this out for me. When did you and Emily welcome your first child to your family and then reset how many you have now? Yeah, so it was uh, when we first got into foster care, it was in 2016, uh, Emily received a phone call from Whitley. She was 17 years old at the time. And, you know, through the sobs on the phone, it was a girl that Emily has mentored and been, she's been in and out of the foster care system. She asked Emily, will you guys please be my foster parents? No one wants me. They plan on, you know, uh, me going into juvenile detention until I age out of the system. And so Emily and I, we talked about the challenges that would come with saying yes to a 17 year old, but we also talked about what would happen if we said no and did nothing. And so we, we took on Whitley, although she was six and seven years younger than us at the time, we were her 18th placement. And that's what really got us into the foster care system. And then uh, the year after our marriage, we adopted Whitley. And then that we also began fostering a sibling group of four girls and we adopted them, uh, bringing our total of five girls. And then a year and a half ago, we began fostering a 18 month old little boy, only 13 pounds at the time. And uh, now a year and a half has gone by, he's thriving and we had the opportunity to adopt him just this past summer. So bringing our total to six kids, five girls, one boy. And then we have fostered a total of 18 children in all over the last four years. Incredible. You, you went from one, and again, let's stress that she was 17 and you guys were like 23. You went from one to five to six to 18 overall. I incredible. And so great for you guys. So quickly, you mentioned the foundation. You started the Chris Norton Foundation. What is the mission behind that? Why is that particular cause so important to you? Well, it's important to me because I've had exceptional support, not just from family, friends, community, but also because I was an NCAA athlete, I got their at-risk, um, special risk insurance policy to cover my medical expenses, my PT, OT, uh, caregivers, medical equipment. Well, it became painfully apparent after my injury that my situation was the exception and not the rule, that there are thousands of people who are in wheelchairs who want a recovery just as badly as I did. They might be as motivated as I am, but they can't do it because they don't have the resources. And so that just broke our heart and we knew we wanted to um, help them and kind of bridge that financial gap, strengthen the therapy options, the opportunities, make it a little bit more accessible to have the best and the latest equipment. And then we've gone a step further. And probably my, my favorite thing is we started a wheelchair camp for kids and their families. And this camp is an inclusive, adaptive camp for kids of all abilities, plus their families and siblings. And they come for free, uh, thanks to our donors and sponsors. But it's an incredible week of camp where they're ziplining, they're horseback riding, laser tag, playing games, 
you name it. It's a full camp experience. Like no one holds back and it's just an empowering week. And it's literally the best week of the year. And we're hoping to continue to expand that camp into more locations. Chris, I even hate to pose this question, but I've talked to people who have overcome. I've never spoken to anybody with a story quite like yours, but others who have had extraordinary things happen to them, extraordinary challenges and obstacles. And I'm just kind of curious, when you think about the impact you've had on who knows how many people, and it's been so challenging, and it's required so much grit and perseverance, and everything that we've talked about for the past hour, if you could go back and change it, or do it differently, or have it not play out like this, if you could in fact change it, would you? Absolutely not. I just, when you, again, look back at 11 years, and the every opportunity to inspire the people to help somebody overcome their challenges, to meet Emily, to start the foundation, to yeah, foster and adopt the kids that we have, and then opportunities to inspire people through my motivational speaking, the my books, and now the documentary, Seven Yards. Like All those things have just make my life so fulfilling. And that's, I feel like, comes from when you serve others. My life is all about serving and before it wasn't necessarily about that and i've grown a lot in that way and i realized you know your life is as rich as the lives you enrich and i'm seeing that now and so i'm living a, a great life um despite living in a wheelchair you know happiness is not measured in steps there's people who can run jump and swim who are unhappy so clearly you know happiness has nothing to do with your physical abilities or possessions and everything to do with your mindset and your mental health. And I realize that now. So um, I'm just really appreciative of everything that's got me here. Can't say how much I appreciate that message. That is absolutely incredible. The documentary is a must-see. It's a must-watch. I absolutely love it. It's called Seven Yards. Chris, for the folks, you are a motivational speaker, a keynote speaker as well. If folks, if they want to see the movie, where do they see the movie? If they want more information about the foundation and the work you and Emily are doing, where should they go to get that? Yeah, so the probably easiest, best way to watch Seven Yards is on Netflix. It, it's streaming on there. A lot of people have Netflix, but you can also rent, buy it on you know, Apple TV and Amazon Prime, Google Play, all those streaming sites. And then to learn more about the foundation, what Emily and I are up to, the motivational speaking, all those good stuff, go to chrisnorton.org is where you can um, sign up for my emails and uh, book me to speak or make a donation to the foundation, whatever you want to do. Um, that's where you can learn about there. And then I'm pretty active, like on Instagram and Facebook. It's it's absolutely amazing. Like I said, I, I was so eager to meet you and to talk to you and have this conversation with you. I didn't mean to take as much time as we did, but I think it was really important that we took as much time as we did. I mean, I can't tell you how much I appreciate and respect you, Chris. Thank you so much for it. The message is amazing. Your life is amazing. Your family's amazing. And I, I just got to tell you, it's an absolute thrill to meet you. And I appreciate you so much. Well, thank you, Jim. It's an honor. And I appreciate meeting you and you taking the time and to understand my story and to share it with your audience. Again, Chris Norton and his journey are almost impossible for me even to wrap my head around. I mean, imagine being that young and doing something you love more than anything in the world and then having the rest of your life change that traumatically in a split second. I mean, short of actually losing your life, you probably could not endure a more dramatic and catastrophic change to your entire world. One minute, you're running down a football field, doing the thing you love most with some of the people you care the most about. The very next, you're fighting for your very life and wondering if you'll ever be able to move anything below your neck ever again. And you're only a freshman in college with your entire life ahead of you. And you take all of that in, and then you ultimately decide it's actually for the better, and that you would not change a single thing about it. You wouldn't change a single thing because you know that you're actually a better person, that you would not be who you are today had that not happened. Like, you would not have the sort of impact you're having on the world had you not suffered this catastrophic injury. You would not have met your wife. You would not have these kids. 
You would not have the understanding, the perspective that you have now because of this. You would not have this incredible life had you not suffered this catastrophic injury. So no, you would not go back. You would not change a thing. I mean, are you kidding me about that mindset, about that perspective? Chris Norton, that approach, that mindset, his process, and the way he attacks that process every single day to go through what he's gone through and maintain that mindset, that is nearly impossible for me to fathom even after talking to him and having him take me through it and explain it. The only way I can explain that is to say that he's exceptional. He's special. And the irony in that statement is, I go back to what his dad said about him. His dad said Chris is special because he's not special. In other words, he wasn't bigger, stronger, faster, or smarter than the rest. In terms of the tangibles, the measurables, he wasn't uncommon amongst the uncommon. But even prior to that fateful day, he had already developed an uncommon mindset, uncommon grit, and drive, and hunger, and desire, and discipline, and standard. And when disaster did hit, and there were absolutely were dark moments, moments where he did ask, why me? Moments where he thought to himself, this is the type of thing that you see on TV or you read about in a newspaper, the type of thing that happens to other people, but not me, not some kid from a small town in Iowa who's doing all the right things. He had those moments. He had those thoughts. And it did happen to him, but he owned it. And so did everybody around him, his family, his friends, his community. And he used all of that. He combined the power of faith, family, and friends, and process. And he attacked every single hour of every single day in a way that he was able to reshape his entire world when almost every last one of us would have given up. And then most incredibly... Not only is he not despondent, not only is he not bitter or resentful over what happened, he's actually grateful. He's thankful. I look at Chris Norton and everybody around him and their approach to his life and their world. And then I think about myself. And then I think about some of the things that I complain about. And honestly, I'm literally ashamed. Like I'm disgusted, but not anymore. Not after hearing his story, not after meeting him, not after having that conversation. What an absolutely unbelievable person and message that he and everybody in his universe have to share with the rest of us. It's a message of hope, inspiration, perseverance, faith, and determination. Clearly, if somebody like that could endure what he has endured and dig in and go on and live the life of his dreams— Given his circumstances, do any of us have a single excuse not to live our own? You know the answer to that already. No. Hell no. My immense thanks to Chris Norton for sharing his story and his time. If you got as much out of that conversation as I did, feel free to share that with other people. Reach out to Chris and Emily directly. And in the meantime, please make sure that you are subscribed to this pod so it will find you every single week and you will not have to go looking for it. And if you got a moment, can you please review it as well? Because that's always so helpful. Once again, I appreciate you all very much. Thank you for listening. Have an amazing week. And I will see you next time right here on The Reinvention Project with Jim Rome. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.